Declaring something impossible leads to more things being possible. Bizarre as it may seem, it's commonplace in quantum physics. That is what my guest today uh, has written and uh, her new book, The Science of Can and Can't. I say her new book. It's in fact her first book, The Science of Can and Can't, is looking at many things, including ideas of quantum computing and also something known as constructor theory that you might have also read about with someone that she works with very closely, David Deutsch. So my guest is Chiara Maletto. This is kind of a tips for existence. It's kind of a book shambles. It's a kind of slightly in-betweeny conversation. We didn't have the full hour for a tips for existence. We're slightly short for a book shambles. We thought we'd put it out anyway because the book is out now and uh, it is fascinating. Here is my conversation with Chiara Maletto. Hello, welcome to our well, it's uh, Book Shambles, Science Supplement. Uh, as you know, we try and do these uh, as often as possible. And uh, today I'm going to be talking to Chiara Marletto about the science of can and can't, which is uh, looking at uh, changing the way that we think uh, about scientific theories, about uh, the, the laws of physics, about finding a way of adapting our mind to be able to, I suppose, to some extent, look beyond as some people imagine science to be a kind of binary system is that fair enough to say that in some ways this is what we're, we're trying to uh broaden out the, the the possibilities of what we see within a theory or a law yes i think um the idea here is to add um a dimension really to the to the to the possibilities that we are um you know adopting in order to describe the universe and um, so, so in this sense, you know, physics has been using this approach where uh, you basically describe what happens to objects when they move in space and time, given some sort of initial conditions. Uh, and and uh, this mode is very successful, has worked really well for all sorts of things, but it, it happens to have problems in, in dealing with some important phenomena. So um, what I'm proposing in the book is that there's a different way of formulating the laws which could supplement this approach, uh, which uses um, this powerful tool of counterfactuals. So statements about what's possible and impossible rather than about what happens. Um, and uh, this should allow us to capture these other things that currently physics can't quite deal with. And hopefully can also enlarge you know, the set of tools that science more broadly can, can harness. Well, counterfactuals, let's get, because that's always the difficult thing, isn't it, is, is getting the definitions, because for a lot of people, when they hear counterfactual, perhaps the first thing they would imagine might be something, well, like, like a novel like uh, Man in the High Castle, where they would think about, here is the alternative history, uh, you know, many of these, and, and, and there's various different history books which have looked about, you know, what if this happened in the English Civil War, what if this happened uh, to, to Hitler, so... In what way is the counterfactual that might be in people's minds the same as the counterfactual that you're talking about from a scientific perspective? Yes, so I think I'm using the term in a very specific way, which makes sense within physics. Um, and uh, the way it's similar to what you just said is that um, these counterfactuals, these counterfactual properties of physical objects that are important in this new way of doing physics are about what could or could not happen to a physical object. Whether or not it happens, it doesn't matter. So, for example, um, you can think of a situation where you want to tell a story about um, why there's a lifeboat on a, on a cruise ship. And now there's one way um, where you, know, you can go about saying how that boat got there. 
and you can tell a story of all the states that the boat went through and so what happened to it. Um, but you will miss a crucial thing about the boat, about the reason why it's there. The reason why it's there is that the ship in question could um, undergo a shipwreck. And this is counterfactual because it may never happen. It could be, I mean, we're hoping in a sense that the ship never actually undergoes a shipwreck. But uh, even so, when you want to explain to someone why that lifeboat is there, the crucial thing to mention is that there could be a shipwreck and that's why the boat is there. And so likewise, I think this is very uh, kind of day-to-day -day example, but I think in physics, there are a host of properties of physical systems that are about counterfactuals, are about things that could or could not happen. Um, they need not happen necessarily. Um, and, and yet they're important to explain, to provide the full picture of what's going on. Um, so the idea is that these counterfactuals are really crucial to tell a complete story about the universe. And currently we are not quite using them um, fully. And that's what the book is about. Because uh, if physics and science adopted this uh, new mode of explanation, they could really enlarge their reach um, in a great way. See, I was because this is what interests me, because to some extent, I, I sometimes found it difficult to get this in my head because it is how I've seen quite a few scientists work. And that's what I wondered about where it goes beyond, because I think that is what it goes beyond. Because, you, for instance, you talk about the the, the, the famous the, the legend of Theseus uses an ex example where uh, Theseus goes off to battle the Minotaur and he says to his dad, when I come back, if the sails, I might get this wrong, if the sails are black, it means that I've been killed by the Minotaur. And if the sails are white, it means, but unfortunately, he gets into uh, romantic shenanigans and forgets to change the sails and his father throws himself into the sea, which at least gets a sea named after him. That's what happens if you drown. You get your own sea. Um, you talk about the fact, this is what I find interesting, which when I was reading that example, I thought to some extent, because as you say, if the, without counterfactuals like the, the lifeboats, no one is aware of the story of the changing sails. But that also seemed to me to be as if that that, that itself would already be incomplete science to merely ob observe the exterior without questioning why. It seemed to almost be telling a story without asking the why question and, and delving into it. But I think, have I missed a point there? No, I think the, the, the point is that science is currently really, um, so at least physics, let's say, let's take physics. I think physics is concentrating on um, uh, formulating laws in a very narrow way. And this way is really to just go through a sequence of events that occur to a physical system. And the, this is maybe sounds paradoxical, but in, in theoretical physics, this sounds like the, the deepest explanation you can give about something. And you know, it's been the holy grail to find this theory that is a complete low motion for the universe once you know that, and once you know the initial conditions of the universe, then you've explained everything there is to say. Now, um, that is um, very powerful an approach. I mean, it works for lots of um, purposes, but it's too narrow. So it doesn't capture all of the things. And like, like in the story that you mentioned, um, it's not enough to just list the um, states through which the particular um, uh, sale will go through in the story. So the color that it acquires during the story. Uh, the point to explain why um, Thesis' father ends up dead in the end is to understand that the sale could have been of a different color and that there was a code um, that was, um, if the sale has this color, 
then this should happen. And if the sale is of this other color, then these other things should happen. And um, all of these things require counterfactuals to be expressed. Likewise, um, to explain why, for example, information can be instantiated in computers and can be embodied in bits and so on, you need to um, refer to counterfactuals being allowed by the laws of physics. It's no use to have the dynamical laws of the universe and the initial conditions because um, if you take all the bits in the universe and you fix an initial condition and you run the laws, those bits will go through a sequence of states. But this fact will never tell you about the very property that makes them bits, which is the mm -hmm. fact that the state therein can be copied onto another bit and it can also be flipped to a different value. So from zero to one and one to zero. Um, so, so this is the way in which um, this new approach pushes physics to ask different questions. I think you got it right there, that the idea is to um, enlarge the set of questions that can be asked in order to understand and explain certain physical phenomena. So I was thinking, I was, it, it almost seems to me that it's, it's not limiting the what if that you need to, you know, to, to broaden out how many, because I think for many of us, we'd imagine you know, a, a lot of science is saying, what if, and, and you're saying that the, once you get the answer that suits and fits and is testable, then we stop looking at, this is the way it's working, but what could be the other possibilities within this law? What might be the things that we cannot observe, but would still be possible within this theory? So um, the idea is that these uh, statements about what could or could not be become the fundamental explanations for the things that we observe in experiments. So uh, let me give you an example. Um, you could explain the trajectory of an object in new, new, with Newton's laws, let's say. Um, and that's okay. But there is another way to explain what's going on when you throw, I don't know, a tennis ball on the wall and so on. Um, that is to appeal to these principles like the conservation of energy, for example. Now, these principles are about what cannot happen. So what this conservation of energy says is it's impossible to build a perpetual motion machine of the first kind, uh, which basically means you can't extract energy out of no energy. Now, this statement is very general. It sounds very distant from the tennis ball, but it has very strong implications for where the tennis ball can go. Um, and it says, for example, that it cannot go in certain places once you uh, set it on a certain trajectory, not because the initial condition is uh, the particular one you picked, but because if you were to go in those other places, it would violate the conservation of energy. And you can actually, in one go, just by looking at this statement about what's impossible, you can erase a whole set of possible trajectories for the tennis ball in question. And in a sense, this explains why the tennis ball has to go on a particular trajectory. So the idea here is that some phenomena, not the trajectory of the tennis ball, but things like information, things like the physics of life and so on, can only be explained in terms of these statements of possible and impossible. Um, and they can't quite be fit into the mold of trajectories and initial conditions. And so these statements of pos about possible and impossible transformations become the most fundamental explanations that we can give about these phenomena. And they can be tested through checking that these phenomena that we're talking about really behave in the way we expect. But this 
prediction that you can make about a specific experiment is then explained in terms of these more fundamental statements, which are ultimately about counterfactuals. Mm -hmm. So it's really like adding uh, a dimension to the um, within which you can tell the story about what's going on. Um, and that's how you then test these statements. The same way that you test the conservation of energy with checking that trajectories of objects go in a certain way rather than in another. So when did you realise, because I know you were in your, I think in your early 20s when you, you uh, was it a, first of all a lecture with David Deutsch, who obviously yeah. you, you work with a great deal. Uh, yeah. uh, did you have, I mean, was there one of those kind of Damascene moments as you heard, you know, was that, hang on a minute, or was it, you know, how, I, I'm interested in knowing that progress of you, you realising what, to seeing that shortfall of how we comprehend the universe and how we interrogate it. It was more like a, a slow process, I guess. So it was like a, 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 a sequence of slight revelations. It wasn't just a single epiphany, um, you know, while having a bath or something. Uh, so I guess the, the way it went is that I was very interested in the work of this guy called uh, John von Neumann, who is a kind of great physicist and mathematician, um, who had... You know, he was interested in making a model that could be more general than the Turing machine. It could 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 um, implement, emulate what living cells do. Uh, basically, self-reproduction, the fact that they can create replicas of themselves. So, von Neumann was um, critical of of Turing's scheme because uh, what powers the, the scheme that powers um, universal Turing machines, universal computers, um, doesn't allow to incorporate this, this task of, of creating a replica of, of oneself. And the, I mean, it's, it's a fact that unfortunately we can't program computers to create replicas of themselves once we buy one of them. And, and, uh, and so, so I was reading this stuff that von Neumann wrote about this generalization of the Turing machine, which is called the universal constructor, um, which is an object that can not only create a replica of itself, but can perform any transformation that's physically allowed and um, I noticed that this uh, theory was proposed a long time ago in the uh, 50s, but no one actually connected with physics. And then, you know, ha I happened to see uh, that there is this chap, David Deutsch, giving a, a, a lecture in, in physics in Oxford about a thing called constructor theory. And then I thought, oh, this is cool. Uh, then I show up at the lecture and it really sounded like a different, different approach. And it, it was very very intriguing to me. It was very much related to the quantum theory of information, which was the thing that I was studying in my uh, PhD. And um, in fact, David proposed it as a sort of generalization of the theory of quantum computers. And so I, I kind of had a chat with David. And I think since then, we, we, we had more and more conversations. And at some point, we just decided to collaborate on an application. And I think the I gradually realized that the promise of this approach was so um, great that I really wanted to try to put it to the test with actual problems in physics, because I think David outlined what was, let's say, a vision or a program, uh, you know, that can extend many years in the future, in a sense. And what I was, was hoping is to find uh, applications where you could actually show that this approach can make the difference. And, and I'm very happy that we managed to do that. And I think now I, I, I've got, you know, there are some collaborators working on this as well and there's kind of growing momentum. Um, and yeah, I guess, I think, you know, physicists are ultimately opportunists in the sense that, you know, they, they, if they see that the tool works, 
then they would just pick it up and use it. And I think that's what we are doing at the moment in the sense that we are kind of showing that this can solve problems. And it's very exciting. Um, well, we're staying on that. I'm not going to leap to quantum gravity yet, but I wanted to, in the book, you write about uh, Darwin and natural selection. And the importance, because of course this is, it's the beginnings which are the most problematic, aren't they? That here, here we are, we're getting back to what it's now. Ten to the minus forty-three seconds, isn't it? We've got got as far back as, yeah. as 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 that, and then the problem hits. And in the same way with life, that idea of you know all of the different—it's it's my favourite thing—is to throw into a room of biologists. How do we define life? And then ba 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 ba. It's and that's that's you know it's a wonderful thing to watch as each other person finds why the other one has got a shortfall. Uh, and so I, I'd like to know more in terms of as, as you do talk about in the book about the constructor theory and and us understanding and possibly in in you know getting to the point of under this is where the inanimate becomes animate. Yes, this is a um, huge open question. And I think um, so the well, biologists have done the job in a way. So they, they produce this beautiful theory that works to explain uh, evolution through natural selection and, and so on. Um, what I think hasn't happened yet is that physics hasn't quite managed to uh, take these general laws that underlie Darwin's theory and connect them with physics in a more explicit way. And I can explain what I mean by that, by um, noticing that there are phenomena that we usually associate with life. The fact that, for example, when life is around, um, certain uh, stability is achieved as far as some transformations are concerned. For example, produ production of certain chemicals happens to be suddenly much more uh, easy and reliable than in the absence of bacteria, for example. Um, and then, you know, when when life forms that are more complex come around, they also um, allow for the whole uh, phenomenon of life in a certain part of the universe to become more stable, more resilient. Now, this to a physicist sound like it's almost there's a law there that that is waiting for being discovered, in the form um, of what is the type of, for example, information that is created and uh, you know it, it, it's accumulated through this process of, of life evolving through uh, more complex and complex forms. Um, and, and this is a very important question because it is crucial to both the fact that we, you know, we, we'd like to survive a bit more in the universe, so it would be nice to understand what is it that powers our civilization um, in, not in a descriptive way, we have a descriptive theory of that, but in, in, a, in a quantitative, predictive way, the way that physics does this type of description. Uh, and also it's important because if you're looking for life elsewhere in the universe, we'd really like to be able to find signatures, to, to, to be able to look for the right signatures um, of, of life uh, somewhere else. And as you said, biologists usually are, um, uh, you know, they, they have various criteria for life, but it's very hard to turn them into factual um, um, criteria for actually uh, detecting life, you know, while you're pointing your telescope in, in, you know, in, in the sky. So um, this is a huge open problem. I think what constructors here can do, uh, I mean, the science of can and can't, this, this approach that I'm describing in the book, is that it can um, provide these new tools 
to describe the this kind of stuff that uh, supports and sustains life, the type of information that we I call in the book knowledge, this resilient information that happens to be in um, not only in civilizations, but also uh, in, in more generally in the biosphere, is a thing that's brought about by natural selection and by thinking as well. Um, so it allows us to have um, an objective handle on these concepts. And so the hope is that on, on top of that, you can build a quantitative theory of how this, this type of stuff behaves and uh, you know, under what condition it keeps growing once it's created in the first place. Um, and, and how this is all compatible with the underlying laws of physics that we already know, which we know are not designed for that, and they um, are completely agnostic about you know, whether there are or not living beings in the universe, which is very important because that's in the spirit of, of what Darwin taught us. Um, so I think it's important that physicists take on board that this is an open problem, because sometimes physicists tend to uh, dismiss this and think it maybe it's not quite for physics to, to think about this stuff. And I think this is because maybe we haven't quite used the right tools so far. Um, the point of, of you know, explaining life in the full way that I'm describing is not to predict that, say, you know, given that the initial conditions of the universe are so-and-so, at some point in the history of the universe, elephants will come up on Earth. That's not what, uh, that's not an explanation for, for life. It's just a prediction of something happening in the universe, but that doesn't quite address the issues that I mentioned earlier, which are the core issues that we have to address in order to understand life fully from the physics point of view. And that's what I'm hoping these new tools will be able to do for us. In fact, I wanted to ask you about when you were learning, because at the beginning of chapter one, you you, you tell a story of uh, a, a girl and she feels that physics, the way that she's been presented it, and I think it is still a problem. I sometimes forget about this, but I think a, a large number of people, that's why you get in the press all the time. Well, science used to say that, and, and it turned out it was wrong. And you go, well, well, no, it was the best answer at the time, and things move on, and you don't just play something in aspic when it's finished. Um, and I was wondering, and there's that lovely moment at, at the end where she realises there is still so much play in everything, that nothing is finished. When for you was that point of, uh, or maybe points where you started to realise that this was your journey? Was it, again, investigating the universe and why it is as it is? Again, I, I can't quite locate a specific moment in, in my memories where that happened, but I think it's definitely happened at university. And I have to say, in, you know, in secondary school, I was really uh, taken by things like literature and philosophy and, and history and so on. But, but the science, um, quite, quite like maths, but I think the, science, the sciences were not quite, um, you know, they, they were not given the best chance by, by the teachers that I, that I uh, encountered. And in that sense, um, that's why the story is there, I guess, because I'm worried that sometimes this uh, fact that physics is an open-ended enterprise, which I only realize in, in the university, isn't really explained properly to uh, students, uh, to younger, you know, uh, A-level students or even earlier than that. Uh, and that's a shame because it's actually fun. It, it, it really is, um, you know, as, you know, as open-ended as any, any other enterprise. In fact, even more, I guess, because um, we have this chance of quickly correcting errors through experiments. And so that's kind of a cool thing that, you know, you conjecture something, then you check it and you see it doesn't work, you can think of something else and so on. Um, and um, that's one thing. And the other thing is that 
it really goes to the foundations of the of how the universe works you know it's it's deep it's it's really it's deep and it's deep in a way that allows you to understand how things that are appear to be very unrelated are actually very similar with you know to one another so you know this usual example of of the apple falling that's kind of governed by the same laws laws as as say um the planets and so on um this isn't a joke it's actually quite it's really deep it's cool that that the, all of these objects are obeying the same patterns and then someone newton in that case realizes that there is a law that that allows you to actually um explain all of them irrespective of the details of how they specifically are set up how they look like and, and so on they all obey this same law and this kind of a unification and that's that's really um a deep thing and unfortunately i think as you said uh when when young students are encounter physics first are, are not these these two things are not clarified the fact it's open-ended and the fact that it's universal it's got this reach that's fantastic it, they're not emphasized at all and you know you, all you you got is this multiple choice questions with you know questions about um trajectories of of bullets and things like that that appear to be fantastically narrow in in scope uh and and that's not the point at all um and i think it would be really cool if somehow you know students could already start doing research when, when they are in 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 secondary school for example i don't see why not uh that would that would maybe give them a a flavor of what it means to to kind of do physics in in the way that scientists uh, do it um and um so in that sense i guess i find more similarities between physics and these other disciplines I mentioned earlier, like the you know humanities, than 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 is usually um, apparent in in lectures in secondary school or or earlier than that. Um, they're all they, they all leave a lot of space for creativity and for you know for for the delight of intellectual fun and thinking and imagining new things. Imagination is very important in physics. You've got to think out of you've got to think of things that haven't been thought before to to solve some of the problems that that are open um and imagination is really key there because you've got you know imagine i don't know einstein the way he thought about space-time that really required a leap of um of creativity to to reach to land on that onto that idea it's very counterintuitive very very far from what we experience and and so on Likewise for quantum theory, I really hope that you know we are transitioning to a moment where maybe physics is explained better by you know and understood uh, by 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 young kids uh, in a way that they find it fun. I really hope that will happen soon. It does seem like a real. I was talking about this with Carlo Rovelli a, a few weeks ago, and and you know again like you, someone who's also really got a deep fascination with the humanities, and and yeah. then you know it's. I don't understand why this battle has not been won because because it and I don't think and I don't blame the scientists for this I think it seems that so often people in charge of education are possibly not scientists and therefore because I was thinking you know the great mathematician you know Jacob Ronowski who did some of the you know incre um, the book after book after book yes. that he wrote about knowledge and imagination 
and you know the visionary eye a wonderful collection of essays again connecting art and science and you know and and carlo was saying you know that the fury of secondary school was going to hell with the levers and pulleys to hell with all and and to me as as someone who didn't you know who who didn't go do any science after he was 16 years old and it's years later that I kind of came back to it as as something that fascinated me it is that bit all of these intriguing ideas these intriguing ideas that you come across in terms of quantum mechanics in terms of the nature of time in terms of of the size of the universe and the expanding None of that was in my yes. curriculum. And talking exactly. to people, it doesn't seem to still be in the curriculum. Going, here are the stories of what is all around you. And they're real. And it's not just a story. It's a, it, it's a beautiful story. And it is connected to something magnificent, which will change the way you look at the sky and the change the way that you feel the ground beneath you. And it, to me, it just... Um, that it, I, I can't understand why people still memorizing equations that you don't even know what they really mean yes it's sad because i think the there's another point that's important to make that that an equation is not really complete without the collection of informal explanations that come with it um and the informal explanations this is something i i like to think in terms of a story it's, it's really um a story that you attached to these particular um, symbols that you're writing in a particular equation or a formula. Um, and and it's, it's as important as the formula itself. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not good to just um, uh, read out the formula without explaining what all the things that are in it mean. And also, um, this, this informal explanation is also often what gets you to think of ways in which you can change or vary that formula to improve on it. Um, so if, if you, this is a kind of example where, you know, if you're looking for a better theory, you've got like here an equation that expresses, I don't know, quantum mechanics or general relativity or Newton's laws, and you're trying to vary mindlessly the maths and say, okay, here, I'm going to add plus something to make it different. You won't land on an explanatory theory like that. It's, it's, it's fantastically, um, unlikely that you will ever discover anything of significance. So what you've got to do is that you have to understand what that means and then uh, vary it in a meaningfully, uh, you know, in a meaningful way. And, and, and what decides what's meaningful is really this informal explanation that's attached to the formula. Unfortunately, the way that often physics is explained, uh, especially to kids, is, is just in terms of these um, mechanical applications of formula that, as you say, are not really put into the context of being part of a universal theory, for example. I mean, Newton's laws are amazing. It's just that no one quite says that they, they, they don't quite point out that they have this reach that's fantastic um and also as you said there is this element of of um mystery liking the fact that some um laws are very counterintuitive so they're a bit like a work of art that at first it takes you back you know like a painting that doesn't look at first like what you expect but that's part of the fun of the painting um, and, and likewise, in this case, um, you know, quantum theory violates your expectations, um, but, but it's fun. That's, that's part of the fun. And, and once you understand what's really uh, the meaning of all of that, you, you have a much richer, deeper and uh, kind of fascinating understanding of, of physical reality. Yeah, I love oh. that. I, I, I was thinking of that lovely thing that... Um... Jacob Benofsky does in an essay where he talks about the poetry of science and he says, you know, Keats wrote, truth is beauty, beauty, truth. 
but you could also turn that into an iron city energy is mass mass energy does that make it is that now a boring bit of poetry is has that made it dull and it's like as you look at that and everyone knows e equals mc squared but that bit of then suddenly going hang on energy is mass and this is yeah. Um that's when uh, the, it, it's like when you suddenly realize how a word is made, you know, when you suddenly look at the structure of it, and you go, oh, yeah, I understand how that's all connecting to what that means by even something like radioactivity. Right. And yes. suddenly it goes and then the pictures start. To, it's not just a word. It's pictures. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you really have to have a lot of. Um, in fact, a lot of imagination. I think each physicist, if you look at even laws that we already know, um, such as exactly Newton, Newton's laws, or even just the foundations of quantum theory and so on, each physicist um, has their own way of, of, of um, expressing these informal explanations. And sometimes, you know, you look at, I don't know, Feynman's lectures or, or, or um, Bohr's uh, understanding of quantum theory and so on. So each of these people um, likes to present this material in their own way and it's often the case that if you follow one of these particular ways you may find either a little problem in the law in question you know you might find uh, that one way of looking at the law uh, that you're considering allows you to see that there is a problem there's a contradiction that no one has actually noticed so far so and often it's the informal explanation that allows you to reach this this um, conclusion and then revisit things that actually are considered done and dusted in textbooks um, and also um, it's it's through these informal explanations that maybe sometimes in the particular style of, of an author you know like as I said Feynman for example that that um, allows you to to then guess what could come next what you know in what ways you could vary the, the law that you're looking at so yeah I think imagination and and the um, pictures that you attach to the law in question are really important, uh, both for understanding the law and for thinking of what could 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 come next or what could be problematic with it. Brilliant. Now, annoyingly, we are out of time, but I just want to I wanted to just say there was a, a an Einstein quote that I'd not seen before. Of course, it might not be Einstein, like Mark Twain and G.K. Chesterton and all those others. Some people's names are just attached to all the good quotes, and that might happen with Einstein. Um, and uh, but it was I was thinking about this when I was reading your book, and I, it was about the fact that. He talked about one of the reasons that how he came up with the ideas he, he he came up with. He said it's looking for a needle in a haystack. You might know this. He says, you know, most people, when they find a needle in a haystack, will stop there. I keep looking for more needles. Yes. It's brilliant. Yeah, I think I think um, that's exactly capturing this um, open endedness and the fact that uh, problems are really, um, you know, the 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 fuel for, for, for more progress. And I think, um, you know, in maybe everyday lives, you consider problems as like a nuisance and you don't want to avoid them in a sense. But uh, in, in physics, in science in general, the fact that you find the problem is a very cool thing because um, it allows you immediately to think of how to solve it. And then there's a way of, of understanding. Usually when you solve a problem, especially if it's in a law that's fundamental, that's kind of the foundations of the edifice of science, um, that solution brings with it um, a host of other problems also being solved and um, you know usually an explanation that has more reach and it's more universal than the one that you had before um, and I think I have to say that it's unfortunate that 
um, the, the way I see science going nowadays is that it's, um, at least in the theoretical physics uh, domain that I know directly, there's a lot of pressure on, you know, young scientists and so on to, uh, not just young scientists, actually all scientists, to, to press on and maybe ignore some of these deeper problems and just for the sake of maybe having a short-term type of innovation uh, that keeps going. And I think in this sense, I mean, it's nice that there is innovation and so on, but but it's it's good to cultivate this love for deep problems and, and you know, look at them and not forget that they exist because they are really important for um, finding the next big uh, step of discovery. Uh, and it they require time, they require, um, you know, it's not something that you can solve in the in a, in a year time. You need maybe ten years or, or more. Uh, but it, but it's nice to cultivate really a um, sort of love or taste for these these type of problems because otherwise we we lose the chance for you know finding the next uh, um, you know great discovery or, or or theory. Well, we never we never got onto quantum gravity, so people are going to have to read the book. Uh, so the the science of can and can't is out now um and uh thanks so much for joining us i was going to quickly mention anyone listening that uh, the the interview i mentioned with carlo Ravelli is up on our site as well at tips for existence as well as a, a recent one with uh, brian green thanks so much for for joining us and uh yes science of can and can't go and get it thanks bye-bye thank you thanks very much for listening don't forget that we have our sunday science q a which is every sunday at 3 p.m though that may well change quite soon so keep an eye out because we might be moving it to earlier in the day at 10 a.m of course normal book shambles as well uh, is out at the moment and uh, we have a new uncanny hour which might have just come out or it might be just about to come out depending on what time you're listening to this which is all about the science fiction classic silent running thank you to everyone who supports us via patreon it's how we can make all of these things we're going to do a load more science book shambles as well which we're going to kind of put out separately to uh the book shambles as well so there's lots to come thank you very much for uh, to, to you i will keep this blurb in because i'm i'm getting slightly lost i was going to say thank you very much for making these things possible and thank you in particular to our producer trent burton who does most of the hard work uh bye-bye this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network